So welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. And in the spirit of the time, we have a yet another shock election result. The Conservatives slumping to a hung parliament, having been predicted by many uh, to soar to the heights of a majority of three figures or more. What happened? What, why did it happen? And what does it tell us about the uh, future of politics in the UK? I'll be joined by two, two different guests today. Uh, first of all, I'll be joined by Ben Launderdale of the LSC to talk about the YouGov model and how that was very successful. Um, and later on in the show, I'll be joined by Mick Filty from Slugger O'Toole to talk a bit about Northern Ireland, the DUP, and what um, events in Westminster might mean for the peace process. But first, as this is a polling-related podcast, we want to start with the data. Now, I think it's fair to say that the pollsters had a mixed night, but at least, with, at least this wasn't 2015. We did end up with some pollsters uh, with you know a smile on their face, Salvation being one of them. But probably the biggest winners of the night were YouGov, who um, produced their much derided model during the campaign, which turned out to be pretty much spot on. And I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Launderdale of the LSE, as I mentioned, to talk about a bit about his work, how it all works, and what it tells us about the campaign. Ben, welcome to Polling Matters. Thank you for inviting me. So, I mean, Ben, before we get into what the model told us about what actually happened, I think it's probably worth uh, taking a step back and uh, establishing what you actually did. I mean, yes, it was a, a model that predicted the number of seats each party would win, but what, what work went into that? So the the approach that we followed is called a multi-level regression and post-stratification approach. And it's sort of, it has three parts. The first part is building up uh, a, basically a model of what the UK population looks like, the voting eligible population, how many people voted for each party at the last election, by age, by educational qualifications, and so forth, and trying to get uh, the best the best picture we can of the distributions of all of those things and how they fit together at the constituency level, so that we have something, so that we have a very rich target to to try to try to uh, make predictions. That's step one. Step two is we build a turnout model which tries to capture the demographic uh, features of of turnout. Um, there we were just aiming to match 2015 turnout patterns. We may come back to this, but um, we were not aiming to prospectively um, predict which groups might turn out at higher or lower rates than they had previously. And then the third part is among the people who are going to vote, um, how are they going to vote as a function of who they voted for last time, how they voted in the referendum, how old they are, where they live, et cetera. And that, that's where we also incorporate information about um, the kind of constituency that people live in. So do they live in a labor conservative marginal? Do they live in a conservative Lib Dem marginal? Um, what, what are the, what's the political context, which turns out to matter a great deal. And then we put all those together and basically for, you know, for each person in our modeled population, we are able to calculate, calculate, you know, at what rate they're likely to turn out or those people like them are likely to turn out. And then among those who turn out, how are they going to vote? And we tally that, you know, multiply those out and add them up across our, our model of the population. And that gets us the numbers that, that, that we published, which are both at the, we can aggregate them at the constituency level to make constituency predictions. Um, and we can aggregate them across the entire UK to get a national vote total. So all of the numbers that we published came from, came from that same place. There were the, the national vote, the national seats and the individual, uh, and the constituency level votes and seats all, all come from that same modeling framework. I mean, the constituency level stuff really was stunning, wasn't it? Because I think one of the 
the biggest reasons why the model was so derided during the campaign was not just because it was against the conventional wisdom saying it was going to be a hung parliament, but also people were picking individual seats that they thought were were outrageous to uh, you know to go a certain way. And Canterbury sticks out in my mind as something that certain pundits were uh, were astonished by. Um, how were you modelling each constituency? Because if I'm right in saying that, uh, from a purely polling perspective, um, from the YouGov polling you weren't dealing with huge sample sizes at an individual constituency level. So you must have been extrapolating uh, from other areas. I mean, how, how did that work? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, one of the great joys of election night was watching the constituencies come in individually and sort of checking them against our, our estimates. And, and they were remarkably close, which made us very happy. It was particularly interesting in the first few declarations when, you know, we really didn't know. And there was a lot of discussion online about whether the uh, exit poll might be out um, to, to just see that we were we were tracking the results. But the the the, play, the constituency level estimates um, are well, they take advantage of the fact that we have a decent number of respondents per constituency. So we had in the YouGov panel, we were getting about 7000 observations per day and using a week's worth of data, modeling trends within that week. So we weren't sort of taking an average over the over the seven days overall. But um, so we had something like 50,000 observations to work with, which tallies out to about 75 per constituency. 70, a, a poll of 75 at the, at a, for each constituency alone is not enough to do a lot with. Um, however, what that means is that when a constituency is moving as part of a larger pattern, um, a pattern that might involve 10 constituencies or 20 constituencies or 30 constituencies, then we actually have a reasonable amount of data to pick up that pattern. And that's where the modeling sort of comes in and really helps us. So for example, Canterbury was a surprise and we heard lots of people give us grief about that before the election. And it turned out that we were very close to, to getting that on the mark. But the reason why the model made that prediction is a few features about Canterbury. Um, I think it was relatively remain within its region. Um, a lot of students, um, again, rel relatively urban within its region, although not not hugely so. Um, it, and the background in terms of the constituency politics from 2015 is that it was a constituency where <clears throat> where the Liberal Democrats had fallen back substantially from 2010. And so you had the conservative, can't, the conservative had won with something like 43% of the vote at the last election. And then Labor and, and the Liberal Democrats were sort of dividing a lot of the remaining vote. There was also a substantial UKIP vote. And that was, that sort of seat was one where there was a lot of, where there were other seats like that, where a lot of the remaining Lib Dems sort of shifted to Labor. So the, these are seats that sort of switched from being Lib Dem conservative marginals in 2010 to being labor conservative marginals this time. And in 2015, there was sort of a, a coordination failure in some sense uh, between labor and Lib Dem supporters. And they sort of didn't ended up losing a lot of seats like that. So there were a few things that were going on there that were part of larger trends. And, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't, what I, the, the sort of the phenomena I just described are not things that I knew going in. They were things that emerged from the data. Um, when, when we, you know, gave, gave the model, you know, sort of features of the constituencies to sort of try to find patterns. So one thing I'm curious about is, um, 
the importance that YouGov's polling methodology had for this model. So I remember in 2015, there were lots of different forecasters um, that were trying to um, extrapolate from polling averages and such like what the seat-by-seat -seat story was going to be. And in the end, because the, the polls were wrong, um, in, in the end, the forecasting efforts were not null and void, but I mean, obviously they were off because they were, uh, to, to paraphrase a phrase, you know, if you put rubbish in, you get rubbish out, as it were, regardless of how good your, your forecasting or your modeling is. So how, how important was it, I guess, that YouGov were on the lower end of um, what the voting intention figures were compared to other pollsters? For example, if you'd been working with data from Comres or ICM that had the gap at 12 points, presumably your model would have reflected that as well? I guess I guess what I'm getting at is well, you know, how important is YouGov's methodology for voting intention and what, what came out of your forecast? Okay, so I have a few things to say on that. The, the first is that actually my sense from having spent much of the, the week before the election, pouring through various data tables from various pollsters, trying to figure out why we had different answers than they did, is that the raw data looked pretty similar across different different pollsters. So in some sense, if we had got if I had been working with the raw data from a different pollster, I think probably using the methods we used, we would have ended up in roughly the same place we ended up in. The differences were heavily down to different choices about about modeling. Um, the it is certainly the case that YouGov's data gives us a lot of richness that that not all pollsters have access to, in particular, the fact that we know before we poll someone what constituency they live in, which enables us to give them a constituency-specific um, prompt. So one of the things that uh, that was sort of new about this, not entirely new, people have done this to, to varying degrees before, but relatively new, is just we gave candidate lists to people for their constituency with names once once the candidate lists were finalized, which meant that we could pick up sort of, you know, things like the liberal Democrats doing relatively well where they had incumbents because, you know, people were looking at the names of their incumbents when they when they responded. Um, so I, I think I think there is uh, we, we can get into the question of, you know, why did we have something so different from from the other uh, from the other pollsters? But I think my sense is the disagreements are, are heavily into the, in the data analysis as opposed to what the raw data looks like. So, so you're really using raw data. So, so the fact that YouGov separately in separate voting intention polls made assumptions that led them to have four or five point leads in comparison to some of the other pollsters was not necessarily relevant to the analysis that you were doing. Is, is that, have I understood that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, with, okay. YouGov had two parallel teams working on this, one doing the sort of the style of polling they've done in the past, and then our team working on this this new style of analysis. And we ended up in somewhat different places, although we largely tracked one another through through the period when we, we were both producing estimates. Um, I was one of the people involved in doing, you know, 2015 modeling with sort of published results. But as you say, there you're, you know, you're captive to the analysis decisions made by the pollsters. So, you know, part of the fun for me of this election was teaming up with a pollster so that I could get access to the raw data mm -hmm. and make my own assumptions about about turnout and, and things like that. Sure. I want to come back to the polling debate, but let's let's talk about the campaign a bit. So look I guess looking at your looking at your very successful model and I guess the trajectory of the campaign um, and, and how the model moved over the course of the campaign, what do you think that that tells us about what actually happened in the election because i guess one of the challenges with polling when it's out and when it's or when it's not is that we, we, we can't be sure what the dynamics at play were i mean i was looking at your model it seemed it does seem like the manifestos were where things changed but what, what's your view 
I think that's certainly what what we saw. I mean, that was the period when we were sort of just getting our model up and running. We didn't have a final specification yet, so it was a little hard to tell because we were changing things and trying to, you know, get the details right. Um, but we were during that period noticing that there was this big trend happening. And for, you know, at first we just thought we were, had screwed something up in the data <laughs> analysis. Um, but then we like looked carefully at the underlying data and we we're like, oh, okay, so things are really moving. Um, we don't we we've done some going we're going to do more in terms of going back and sort of applying the final model that we fit to the earliest data that we collected but we certainly when we first started getting estimates um that were looking plausible in terms of the details we had the conservatives around 370 seats which obviously would have been a very different result um in terms of the politics and much more what people were expecting uh so i think the the trend we saw really Sort of ended a, a, a few days after, um, maybe maybe even as much as a week after the conservative manifesto. I forget exactly the chronology. It was around um, the Manchester attacks, um, but the trend had sort of stopped at that point, um, and we did, then didn't see a whole lot of movement from that from then until the until the election. Right. And thinking about the, I mean, you sort of alluded to some of this um, earlier in our conversation, but looking at the way the different seats went and in, in your model, I mean, what do you think we can learn at this very early stage in terms of the politics of the UK? I mean, there's a lot mentioned about the age breaks, but I just wondered what, your, what, what, what you've learned about the politics of this country from your model and from, and from looking at the data <laughs> quite extensively. Yeah, so I mean, at the core of our model is you know, we we basically are modeling people in terms of how did they vote at the last election? And then we break that into further types by how they voted in the referendum. But at its core, we're sort of thinking, OK, what are the people who voted conservative last time going to do this time? And then figuring out how they vary by EU referendum vote and age and so forth. And then how are the people who voted labor last time going to break this time? And so forth for all the groups, including people who didn't vote last time as well. And we, you know, have to make some some difficult assumptions about how many of them are going to be. But um, we know exactly how many or, you know, pretty much know, aside from, you know, people failing to turn out this time, we know at least roughly how many conservative 2015 voters there are, labor 2015 voters, et cetera. So the, the things we're then looking at are really patterns in switching. Um, that's that's how you make gains and losses by and large. You know, turnout can do some things that's in the margins. Um, and there are people... Uh, and, there, and people do sometimes drop out, I guess, another another kind of turnout effect. Um, what we saw in the switching was really interesting. And there there were sort of two two variables that really jump out in terms of switching behavior, aside from the local political context. stuff. At the individual level, um, it's age and it's EU referendum vote, which are, of course, are themselves correlated. Um, so the conservatives held up very, very well among the conservative voters who voted leave. They lost lots of their remain voters and particularly their younger remain voters. Um, so people under 45, under 50. Uh, they really only retained about 70% of the people in those demographics who voted for them at the last general election, which is, which is not great um, for them. And, and that's where their losses were concentrated. Labor um, obviously was gaining some of those people um, Labor lost some of their older voters, particularly their leave voters. The Lib Dems lost votes in all directions, um, but also picked up votes from lots of different places. Again, sort of as you would expect, there, that was closely related to how people had voted in the referendum. So there was 
there was actually a lot of vote switching at the individual level in this election. I think more than more than in previous many previous elections, this really uh, this election did scramble um, party attachments a bit in the in in the country. It's a, it's a funny it's a funny contradiction in terms in a way, isn't it? That you know, voting attention seems so volatile at the moment, and yet the two main parties ended up with their biggest joint share that we've seen for for quite some time. Um, I just want to finish really with uh, just your thoughts on what this means for the future of data and politics and polling. That's something that this podcast uh, focuses a lot on. Um, I mean, do you think that polling as it's traditionally been done is kind of dead now and it, the future is this modeling? Um, I, mean, I suppose it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, we have to make sure that the voting intention that goes into modeling is correct, but it sounds like you, you've cracked something here. Um, we certainly think we have a better way of, of at, at the very least, a better way of getting at sort of seat predictions. I think I think we're very confident of that. I, the the older techniques of reweighting and filtering and the various uh, tools that people have used, you know, these are tools that work in theory, but like any tools, ours included, you know, they can run into problems with the kinds of practical issues of the data that we get get access to. So, with the patterns of non-representativeness that we see. Um, which are, you know, fairly severe in both online and phone polling. Uh, we think that the kinds of modeling that we're doing are, you know, are more attractive for fixing those problems with the raw data that 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 people have, and also that the the kind of approach we used is just it it makes it easier to do the careful accounting that you need to do to make sure that you're not you're not assuming some radical change in the electorate from last time that you don't mean to to assume. Um, so, you know, I think. There are there were some some big differences in what different pollsters were assuming, not always maybe intentionally, but implicitly about sort of who would drop out of the electorate, who would come into the electorate, um, how that would relate to age, how that would vote to, relate to the parties they voted for at the last election. And you just have to be really careful. And I think um, I think the part a lot of the discrepancies are due to those those differences. And, you know, some some methods make it easier to be confident that you're you're doing what you intend to do. Well, fascinating stuff, Ben, and congratulations again for your success. Um, ben Launadale, thank you very much for your time. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, now on to events in Northern Ireland. Now, regular listeners to this podcast will know that I've tried to do my very small bit to keep Northern Ireland on the agenda as much as I can. I don't think you'll need my help, though, now. The DUP won 10 seats in Westminster last Thursday and now seem to hold the balance of power in the British government. But what price will they have? To, will they extract from the Conservative Party to give them their support? And how stable might any deal between the, the Tories and the DUP be? I'm joined by Mick Fielty from Slugger O'Toole, who was on a few months ago to sort of dissect the results in Northern Ireland and what happens now. Mick, welcome back to Polling Matters. Hi, Karen. So, oh, lots to talk about, Mick. I think before we get into some of the um, detail around the future, it's probably worth pausing and just having a look at what actually happened in the results in Northern Ireland, isn't it? Because I think there were the nature of the results in Northern Ireland were quite interesting, particularly off the back of the Assembly elections recently. So before we go into the what happens now, what were the results in Northern Ireland and why does that matter? Well, one thing that absolutely has, has happened is that out of the 18 seats, only one of those 18 seats now belongs to uh, a politician who's not a member of either the DUP or Sinn Féin. Seven Sinn Féin seats. Previously, there were four Sinn Féin seats. They've um, 
now taken, they've taken one from the Ulster Unionists, they've taken two from the SDLP, uh, and the DUP uh, have taken one from the Ulster Unionists and another one from the SDLP, effectively wiping those two minor parties, minor nationalist and unionist parties, completely out of the picture. That's significant on the nationalist side in the sense that the SDLP used to take their seats in Westminster. Now those three seats, um, well, two out of those three seats belong to Sinn Féin. That means no more representation at Westminster. Um, what happened this time? Well, we saw a big surge in March um, in the Assembly. Um, um, I was going to say the, the Assembly exam, but the, 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 <laughs> the, the Assembly election where Sinn Féin had a massive surge, came to within one seat of overtaking the DUP. Um, this time, not much sense of an increase for the SDL, or for Sinn Féin, except in one or two places like North Belfast, where they managed to squeeze the SDLP vote and close the gap with the DUP. The real feature this time is that is the DUP vote went up from something like 27 or 28% up to 36%, they put on 100,000 votes, which doesn't sound like much, but when you think um, that takes them up to 390,000, it's a long time since any political party um, creamed that much uh, in, in terms of votes out of out of, out of of Northern Ireland. Yeah, just, just to interject there for the benefit of listeners, so uh, the electorate was 1.2 million. So if someone's right, uh, increasing their vote share 100,000, that's a, that's a lot in the context of Northern Ireland. It, it, so, sorry, Mick, go on. Yeah, no, it is. It's a huge amount. M more than that, though, compared to the DUP's performance in the Assembly elections, if you were to transpose some of these outcomes onto an Assembly election, it would probably mean uh, th that the DUP would gain another six seats. Two major things out of this. It, it means that any threat of calling in a, a second Assembly election so that, the, that Sinn Féin could catch up with the DUP, that's probably gone now. Um and the other thing that's gone, and, and this would have been a very um, destabilizing issue, Jerry Adams quite specifically said that this election was a poll on whether there should be a border poll. Not immediately, but within the next five years or so. I think that's pretty much gone, very much as a, a second independence reference referendum has now gone in, in Scotland. And that, in some respects, settles an issue that are a itches a scratch or scratches an itch that um, has been niggling away um, at Northern Ireland politics for the last couple of years. Right, so obviously a consolidation of the two main parties in Northern Ireland, which is, I guess, an, on an ongoing trend. Um, let's, let's pivot over to the big sort of story at Westminster. Now, as we're recording this, there is no formal deal between the Conservatives and the DUP. Um, Arlene Foster is says that she hopes there's one sooner rather than later. Um, John Major has warned not to take the peace process uh, for granted. So an ever-evolving situation. And by the time people listen to this on Wednesday evening, perhaps there will be some kind of a deal. But before we go on to the uh, mechanics of what a deal might look like or what happens next, um, tell the listeners a little bit about the DUP, because I think it's worth, there's a lot of um, rhetoric flying around, some justified, some less so. Um, it's just probably worth just pausing and understanding who these people are. Well, in the first place, the thing I think that's causing most concern is the party's uh, high degree of social conservatism. It's very much a mix mismatch with the more liberal mores of England, but that's partly a function of the fact that Northern Ireland is a very small region within uh, within the United Kingdom. 
it's also it's also matches with the pattern of church going in Northern Ireland. The participation in church life is much higher in Northern Ireland, and the, and consequently the four main churches: the Presbyterian, um, the Methodist, the Church of Ireland or Anglican, and the Catholic Church have much more influence in terms of how social policy it r- runs through. So, for instance, uh, um, the DUP have got a lot of stick on their stance on abortion, but there is no party, no single party, that is in favour of bringing the 1967 Abortion Act into Northern Ireland. Now, that causes, uh, we know uh, from the figures, that there are a lot of uh, young women who leave Northern Ireland every year, just as they do the, Repu- the Republic, and they come to clinics in in England, which is perfectly legal for them to do in England, but not over there. But the DUP is not alone in that. None of the other parties uh, back that either. On marriage equality, yes, they have blocked it. And in a way, they are the only party left in the Assembly that have blocked it for Northern Ireland. But there is no possible way in which uh, that can really back. I mean, that that is confined to Northern Ireland, that policy. There's no way that... um, you know, banning marriage, marriage equality in, in any way, shape, or form is going to be part of any deal they do with the Conservatives. History, I, think, I think this is sorry to interject. I think this is a quite an important point, though, because there is, there are some people that um, are following what's going on and maybe don't yes. understand fully what's devolved, what's not devolved, and what the DUP might ask for. You're being very clear, and you're saying that. Um, whatever your position on the DUP's position on these issues, they're not going to make marriage equality and abortion part of any deal with the Conservatives in Westminster. No, they can't. I mean, one, they don't have the numbers. Two, they wouldn't have the credibility to do that. And in many ways, it's unfinished business for Northern Ireland if and when the Assembly ever gets back. It's very likely, uh, now with the numbers uh, from from March, that, uh, that the DUP could not block any new legislation coming through there. So Northern Ireland is almost certainly, if and when we can get back to get our MLAs back to work, that's almost certainly going to flow from that. Now, the, one of the problems with the with the the DUP is particularly from John Major's time in office, and certainly he must be remembering dealing with uh, Ian Paisley. And when it was, I mean, Matthew Dancona has put a piece in the Irish Times today saying that um, that this is the equivalent of being run by the Free Presbyterian Church, which was a small sect set up by the Reverend Ian Paisley. The truth is the modern DUP is a very, very, very long way away from that. It's very misleading, uh, a, very, a very misleading idea. It's a, it's a more modern uh, party. It's more technocratic. It has had, unlike the Lib Dems who went into coalition with the Tories in 2010, this is an experienced party of government that understands how civil service works. My feeling really about why the negotiation is taking longer is because actually the DUP have more clear understanding of what's possible, uh, where the blocks are in terms of how funding can be released. They're talking perhaps about releasing capital funding because it's less likely to get caught up in the intricacies of the the Barnett formula. They'll be looking for reform at UK level as well. Things like um, retaining the triple lock on pensions, which was in the Tory manifesto, but which they will be looking to, to, to release. And they'll be looking for credit for that, not simply on a Northern Ireland basis, but on a UK-wide basis too. Partly, um, 
to try and reform the, the, the impression, the general impression that, that's been given in these early days of the shock of the London media uh, when they first have a look at the history of the, the, the UP. One of our bloggers on Slugger O'Toole, Peter Donaghy, um, actually did a policy match between uh, um, the DUP and Labour on one hand and uh, the Conservatives on the other and found that there was a much tighter match with the with the Labour manifesto than there ever was with the Conservative manifesto. So any influence the DUP is likely to have on that manifesto is probably going to try and loosen the, the purse strings. They're probably in a good position there because if uh, Philip Hammond, if it's his star is rising and May's May's is falling, that's kind of going with the grain of where the Conservative Party needs to go. Mm-hmm. And of course, the other issue is Brexit. Well, yes, we'll come to that. I mean, Philip Hammond. It's interesting you mentioned Philip Hammond. There is something. There is something of the John Major about Philip Hammond. But maybe that's for a, maybe that's for another day. Um, one of the things that people obviously are concerned about, and, and John Major, so John Major has raised this today, is the peace process itself, and this idea that the British government has to appear to be, you know, unequivocally neutral, uh, and does, you know, maybe uh, the DUP's presence in government, maybe not literally in government, but with an obvious inf- influence over the government, uh, sort of challenges that in, in some way. What's your feeling on the peace process? How worried should be should people be about the peace process, given what where we are at the moment? Well, I think they should be very worried. I think, uh, but really, this election and its outcome hasn't presaged the crisis in the peace process. The peace process has been inherently unstable since about two thousand and ten. Now, just part of history. Uh, the whole thing was signed in 1998. It took about two years before the institutions were up. Then it fell and it, uh, it was up again. Then it fell in 2002. Long interregnum. Peter Hayne really was sent over by Tony Blair as the fixer to get it done before he left. Um, and that was really up and running by um, May 2007. Now, in theory, the, 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 the Assembly has run for 10 years, but it has had a series of nervous breakdowns. And that's really because having squeezed out the the moderate middle, um, the DUP and Sinn Féin are two parties that really are about as tribally um, opposed to one another that it's possible to imagine. It's been very hard for them to find common ground, even though they did eventually find common ground in terms of ameliorating the welfare reform package, um, uh, or austerity package is probably more, more, uh, more, more fit. Uh, but it took them two years of wrangling over a deal they jointly um, jointly um, negotiated. The problem is that um, there is no more party that is a more unpopular with Sinn Féin's base than the DUP and vice versa. So they're constantly having problems trying to keep their own base happy because their base hates the other team that they're actually working with. So there's a there's a fundamental cultural problem. And we've seen that really in this election, that the hit button was pushed time and time and time again. So that what's happened is we got a polarization. Mm. So I don't buy the John Major or the Jonathan Powell reasoning for the, the, the idea that the British government has been a, a, a good, honest broker. When they've needed that, they've bought that in. Richard Haas has done that job for them. And in fact, actually, you could criticise both the British and Irish governments by saying they've been far too standoffish and unwilling to punish bad behaviour and identify bad behaviour when it has happened. 
Uh, and so that's not really the problem. The problem is by, by Sinn Féin not taking their seats, by Sinn Féin not being present at this negotiation, Irish nationalism has no sort of control or influence on the kind of outcome or the sort of settlement that the DUP will negotiate on everybody's behalf. And there is an inherent problem with that. If the DUP go in and feather bed Protestant and unionist areas and communities, if they if they go in with party pro uh, uh, propositions that the Conservatives then buy into unquestioningly, that will almost certainly create difficulties uh, at home. What the DUP has to do in this situation is to become much more mature than it, and generous than it has ever been before. Uh, so whatever it brings back has to be transparently of benefit to all the citizens of Northern Ireland. And if they can do that it, uh, and, and then generate some generosity that makes it almost impossible for Sinn Féin to stay sat out of the uh, Northern Ireland Assembly and motivation money, extra money where you can actually do something of a, as a minister, whereas the, the, the money, the roses, horses, everything was just running out on, on the previous executive, then there may be some real serious um, uh, motivation to get everybody back in. But that really does depend on whether the Conservatives and the DUP can come up with an, a, an equitable solution that motivates the game to start all over again. And yeah, I suppose there's always the risk that it goes the other way. I was watching um, the excellent Slugger O'Toole TV before we came on air and people that uh, listen to this podcast should give it a whirl. Um, and one of your panellists, I, I can't remember who it was, I apologise to that person, um, was suggesting that there are a lot of cultural issues that the DUP might want to, to bring up because they, to do with British flags and maybe even marches um, because they feel there's been an imbalance on, on the part of Sinn Féin in terms of how some of those issues have been dealt with in the past. So I guess you, you've talked about how it's quite important for them to be grown up and to bring back a settlement that benefits all of the people of Northern Ireland. I suppose there is a risk, I don't know how strong that risk is, that the reverse becomes true. Yeah, that panellist was Nelson McCausland, who was until March uh, an Assembly member for the DUP in North Belfast. Uh, he's certainly close to the Orange Order. These are the kinds of things the Orange Order are looking for. There's some disgruntlement in in uh, some parts of what we call cultural unionism, uh, which is really just kind of to do with the, cult the culture of uh, Protestant Britishness, if you like, the, 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 the tradition of the glorious revolution and freedoms and all the rest of it. Uh, where they think really too much was conceded in the past to um, to Irish nationalism, Irish culture, Irish language, all the rest of it. How likely, uh, now that demand is going in, and it's certainly being made of the DUP, how responsive to the to that the DUP would be in terms of prioritising it in negotiation, I'm not sure. I think the danger of unravelling some of the settlement in the past in absentia from the Assembly, I think, it's, I think the risk of that is too great. Okay. Let's move on to Brexit and the wider position then. Obviously, Theresa May certainly didn't get the uh, uh, arrangement in Parliament that she wanted. So now she has to rely on a minority government and support uh, from the DUP in many cases. They're obviously going to have a very strong position, even though they support Brexit and what happens to the border and things like this. I mean, what do you think Theresa May's current position means for Brexit? Yes, with the DUP, but I suppose more generally too. It's going to be very difficult for her. Um... Although the one thing that she's got in her favour is the Fixed Parliament Act. Um, you know, will will this go to time? I, I, you know, Nelson was saying on Slugger TV he didn't think it would. Uh, there's no history of 
um, this kind of minority arrangement getting to the end, although uh, the, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act gives them a degree of stability and security that means actually unless there unless there's a you know a mass clear out of you know older MPs kind of just dying out the numbers are quite steady my feeling also is that whatever the D, the DUP is the most practiced and accomplished uh, mainstream political party in Britain and Ireland Northern Ireland uh, at negotiation they've I mean all these breakdowns at Stormont they're constantly in teams of negotiation Peter Robinson who I'm sure is working in the back team uh, here is, is is has been an is an absolute demon in that up cl- close uh, and personal space so I imagine that scenarios are being pushed through that will theoretically stress test the, the strength of this arrangement before they get. So there will be agreements about where the DUP will be able to kind of pull away from the government and where they will just go in and lockstep. And that will there will be a degree of um, push, pushing some of those issues right up front and going, look, this happens, that happens. One of the advantages that the DUP has here, of course, is it was the only mainstream uh, UK political party that was unanimously behind Brexit. Uh, and there's a lot of social ties between those who ran the Brexit campaign in Northern Ireland uh, and, and those in the official leave campaign in, in, in London. So there's a lot of shared understanding about what the parameters of possibilities are between those two parties in a way that probably doesn't exist outside it. So the Brexit process, this really, I think, should strengthen the UK government's hand. I think a priority will be made of creating security around that period of uh, Article uh, Article 50 negotiations. And after that, I think perhaps all bets are off. And then final question, last minute or so, Mick. Um, if you had to sort of position yourself as positive or negative or optimistic or pessimistic about Northern Ireland's future, I mean, wh- which side of the coin would you be at the moment? <laughs> Tough question, I think. Uh, uh, I, well, somebody once said to me many years ago. I mean, I've been writing about Slugger, you know, on Slugger O'Toole for fifteen years. It's probably the longest single-running political blog on these islands. But there, I was once called Pollyanna because no matter how bad it seemed to get, I always take the view that the end of something is never the end of something. It's simply uh, waiting uh, for the beginning of something else. I think these crises are really just about crunching forward. We've had 20 years since the peace agreement was signed. I, uh, I, something has to come in its place. The fact that um, we've got a, 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 a our largest single political party is now um, able to carve real government resources out at the centre in, in Westminster and Whitehall, I think the release of that resource and the equitable spread of that resource could well um, be a catalyst for a, a proper restart with ministers who can go into their office with the possibility of actually doing something about the health service, doing something about improving schools, uh, because you cannot reform or do anything unless you have a surplus uh, of cash and not constantly just cutting off your neighbor's uh, tablecloth and try to use it to patch up mm. your own. Yeah, so there needs to, there needs to be incentive. I think there's a possibility here of real incentive, uh, particularly if Philip Hammond rather than George Osborne is managing the books. 
Mick Filty from Slugger Tool, thank you very much for your time. That was Mick Filty there from Slugger Tool uh, returning to the podcast. A big thanks to uh, Mick for his time. Both managing to combine some ominous warnings for the peace process there, but also with some optimism for the future of Northern Ireland as well. So something very much to um, keep an eye on in the future. I do think it's worth stressing that as we look at Westminster and the the ins and outs of a um, deal between the Conservatives and the DUP, when that comes about, we shouldn't forget that when it all is said and done, there is a peace process in Northern Ireland. There is a you know, th- this one election is not the be-all and end-all for what happens there and the, the, the future of the place. So I, I do think that there is a risk some of us are looking too much in the now and not in terms of the long-term future. So let's very much all hope that everything works out. But certainly some interesting thoughts there from Mick. Also, a big thanks uh, today to uh, Ben Launderdale for taking the time to come on and explain the YouGov model, which was, of course, as I mentioned in the intro, much derided at the time. And certainly, you know, I, I had a few raised eyebrows um, myself, given the error bands in some of the seats. I thought, you know, how can you possibly get this right? But look, that they did. And, you, and when, when you see innovation like this that seems to work, um, you have to hold your hands up and say, you know, well done uh, to the team there. Of course, we should always bear in mind that you know you're only as good as your last model. Um, it will be interesting to see if YouGov managed, uh, YouGov's model manages to um, continue to predict elections successfully in the future. I guess we'll have to uh, wait and see. No reason to think that it won't, of course, but you know, again, we'll have to wait and see for the future. Um, closing thoughts from me, really. We've got a couple of minutes left. I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the um, recent past about what this election says about our politics and also the sort of punditry and the so-called... Westminster bubble. I think on the politics side, it does look like Labour are very much in the ascendancy. You can spin the results however you want, and you can talk about how Theresa May increased her vote share, and you know how the Conservatives haven't reached 43% of the vote for some time, I think since the early 80s. But at the end of the day, you know this was an election where Theresa May was supposed to increase her majority substantially, and she failed to do that. And she very much um, leaves uh, the election weaker than when she entered it. And if you're calling a snap election, that's that's a disaster, isn't it? I mean, if this has been the end of a five-year term, then you kind of shrug your shoulders and you take take what you can get maybe. But, you know, the Conservatives will be uh, devastated by this result. On the flip side, Labour, you know, look, everyone thought, you know, a lot of people thought, I certainly thought Jeremy Corbyn was someone that would never win a general election. Um, but, you know, he has substantially increased Labour's vote share and now has to be taken seriously as a potential future prime minister. And I think the challenge for him will be uh, what happens with that scrutiny and whether when people are faced with the prospect of him genuinely being in Downing Street, will that make some people think again? We just don't know at this stage because we don't know when the next general election will be and we don't know the context in which it will be fought. Um, we certainly should expect the Conservatives to have a difficult time managing a minority government during the uh, Brexit negotiations, so lots of encouraging, um, encouraging noises, uh, encouraging signs for the Labour Party. But at the same time, it's a volatile, it's a volatile, volatile time at the moment in British politics. Um, we should bear in mind that Neil Kinnock was expected to win in 1992. Ed Miliband was certainly expected to form some form of government in 2015 by most people, and for various different reasons, those things didn't happen. So. What happens next is largely going to depend on how Brexit goes. Um, This debate between a hard and soft Brexit and how that permeates between the different political parties, because it isn't purely a party political issue. There's debates within both major parties as well. Then also who actually contests the next election, because one assumes, 
unless it's brought about by a vote of no confidence. That will not be Theresa May on the Conservative side. So lots to lots to pour over. And I guess final word in, in defence of the pundits a bit. Um, it's certainly true that we all need to go away and sort of challenge our priors. Um, I, for one, thought that we would see a majority of 50 to 70 for the Conservatives. Uh, I said there was an outside chance we ended up back where we were, but I, I didn't really see a hung parliament. So I need to reassess you know, my workings there, although I didn't have a formal model. But we should remember, of course, and as Ben alluded to in his discussion of the YouGov model, that going into this election, we had 20-point poll leads for the Conservatives. Jeremy Corbyn had some of the worst poll ratings of a leader of the opposition ever. The local elections had been a disaster, or at least they were in the first couple of weeks of the election. Um, and there had been things like the Copeland by-election. All of those things only pointed in one direction. And as the YouGov model suggested, um, before the manifestos, that direction was where we were headed. But you know what this election has taught me more than anything is that, yes, our politics is in a state of flux. People are fickle in how they vote, but also the campaign does really matter. And if you stuff it up, as the Conservatives clearly did, then you're on a hiding to nothing. But anyway, that's enough uh, from us this week. Uh, a lot longer, longer sort of bonus episode for you uh, this week. Big thanks to my guests Ben Launderdale and uh, Mick Fielty for their contributions. Certainly there's going to be a lot to keep our eye on in the coming weeks as we uh, see whether or not there is a deal between the Conservatives and the DUP. You know, we may very well be back uh, in election mode sooner than we think. If there is, just how, uh, how settled and uh, stable, to use that phrase, will that government be? And what will it mean for the Brexit negotiations? We'll be following all of that on this podcast in the coming weeks. Now, if you like what you hear, as ever, do share us on social media or in any way you can. It really does help get us out there. And if you want to be really helpful, then do give us a like or a positive comment on our Facebook page or on um, iTunes or other podcast apps. It all is a complicated algorithm, but it helps us uh, get up the charts and uh, get a wider exposure. And we very much appreciate it. But for now, as ever, thanks for listening.